Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin with, a big thank you goes out to Christopher, Maurizio, Penny, and longtime friend of the salon, Auden. Uh, you have all uh, started us well on our way to covering this month's expenses here in the salon, and I thank you all very much. So, uh, today we're going to get to listen to the first of the 2013 Palenque Norte talks that were held at this year's Burning Man Festival. And it is uh, perhaps the most timely talk that we've ever had here in the salon. The speaker is uh, John Gilmore, who you may know as one of the co-founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, which is one of the primary organizations that are leading the charge to expose the massive amount of spying that the U.S. government is conducting on its own citizens, uh, not to mention the citizens of almost every other country on this planet. What you may not know about John, however, is that he is also the person who created the alt hierarchy in Usenet and is a major contributor to the open source project. Now, if you're a geek like me, that information will just blow you away. Uh, as a strong supporter of open source software uh, myself and a long ago a dedicated reader of the alt.drug streams on Usenet, I for one am uh, deeply indebted to John for all he has done and continues to do for us all. But I'll save the rest of John's introduction for Chris Pezza, or Pez, who is the cornerstone of Palenque Norte. And uh, without Pez and all of the wonderful people that he recruited to help him this year, well, there simply would be no Palenque Norte. So, Pez, I know I don't say this enough, but we all deeply appreciate everything that you're doing to keep our community as vibrant as it now is. The uh, Palenque Norte talk that we're about to listen to was uh, somewhat of a casual gathering where members of the audience asked questions along the way. So John's remarks were necessarily shortened by the amount of time that the questions took. In this case, his uh, one-hour talk included almost 20 minutes of uh, questions and comments, but unfortunately uh, there was no microphone in the audience, and so they weren't picked up clearly enough to include in this podcast. Uh, so as you'll be able to tell in just a moment, I, I cut out the questions that we couldn't hear very well, but fortunately, John was kind enough to repeat them, so I don't think that we missed anything. Now, uh, let's listen to the first of the most recent collection of Palenque Norte lectures. Hey everyone. Hey. Welcome back to Palenque Norte. Ooh, we have a juicy talk here for you. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce John Gilmore. Uh, John was the fifth employee for Sun Microsystems and later went on to found uh, Cygnus Solutions and um, from there went on to co-found the Electronic Frontier Foundation and he also serves as a board member for both the Marijuana Policy Project and the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, So with that, I'm very excited to introduce John. Thanks. So I didn't bring a set speech for you folks. I decided I would ask you all what you want to hear about because among even just the things EFF does, you know, I couldn't cover them all in an hour. And then when you add in marijuana policy, psychedelic uh, research, and uh, 
Silicon Valley history and all the rest. Just you guys tell me what it is you want to hear. There's somebody. Introduce what EFF is. Sure. It, the Electronic Frontier Foundation is a nonprofit public charity. It looks at basically civil rights in cyberspace. It's how the advent of electronics and instant communications have changed public expectations about how we treat each other, what the laws should say, what the expectations, the mores, the social norms should be. And there's all these gray areas between how we used to treat each other and what the laws used to say and what we're doing now. And people get, fall into those gray areas all the time. We try to smooth that out to educate people, to educate the lawmakers, to go through the courts to remove some of the most egregious problems and uh, try to move us forward into the electronic age with all the same rights we had before the electronic age and still getting along. <laughs> yes? Ah, so Pez asked me to restate the questions. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, basically the question is: um, given that people who were really thinking about this already knew that the government was doing a lot of the evil stuff that Edward Snowden's revelations have brought us more evidence of, you know how how can we? structure things, structure our own lives and technologies and expectations so we can move forward into a less paranoid era? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> I'm trying to sort of get a survey before I dive into any of it, but yeah. Yeah, good question. It's... Uh, some of the courts have held that you know if they're doing screwy shit to everybody, then nobody has standing to challenge it. And uh, what are we doing about that? And how do we get a handle to get the courts to actually engage on these issues? Another good question. Uh, how about over here? Congratulations. Yes, legalized marijuana in Washington State. Okay, where where do we stand on getting the rest of the psychedelics legalized? Great question. Uh, who else back here? Do non-Americans have any rights in the modern era of the National Security Agency? But over here. Right. Is there a jurisdiction somewhere in the world that actually has good rules on this stuff where people can move their companies and their businesses and their projects to, to escape this kind of bullshit? Yeah, Tron. Is there a difference in how we should approach government versus how we should approach corporations, particularly around privacy and things like that? Yeah. Okay. Where does EFF stand on civil disobedience? Do we encourage people to break unjust laws and suffer the penalties thereof? Good question. Yeah? Okay. Uh, question is, what's the prospect for a sort of do-it-yourself internet that plugs together wirelessly and just works and connects us all? Good, good question. See if I can keep you guys asking questions for the whole hour. I don't have to answer any of them. <laughs> yes. Regarding Lessig's lecture at the DMCA takedown situation, how do I think it'll play out? That one, I can tell you, I'm not sure. 
because I haven't tracked that. Re- I know it's he's put out some stuff recently, and I haven't had time to read it. Yeah, right. So if somebody sends a, a takedown notice to get your website or whatever taken down, and they lie in the process, how come none of them have been prosecuted for perjury? Good question, and, and we've, we've done some work on that. What do I see as the end goal of the whole corporatocracy takeover? The NSA and the corporations, all of that stuff. It's all an evil conspiracy. Okay. Well, that's, that's a pretty good survey. Um, since we only had one drug policy question, why don't I knock that one off first, and then we'll get all into the EFF stuff. And so that was... Uh, we've got legal recreational marijuana in two states, Colorado and Washington. What are the prospects for extending that to psychedelics? Um, well, first, we have an actual plan to spread the legal use of recreational marijuana from two states to ten states by 2016, which would include running initiatives in six states in the presidential election of 2016. Um, so, and we're hoping that by about 2020 or so we'll have enough states that have moved that it will force the feds to have to fix the laws there. Um, so, with, now, marijuana, it turns out, is three-quarters of the illegal drug problem, right? Because it's three times as popular as all the other drugs put together. So if you can move marijuana out of the black market and into a legal and regulated market, you've gotten rid of three-quarters of the crime, three-quarters of the violence, three-quarters of the black market money. It changes the dynamics for the other drugs. It makes it much more of a small potatoes kind of thing. Um, and I think that will help in, in regularizing the rules for the other drugs. Now, for psychedelics, the reason that marijuana is legal in those states is because more than 50% of the people in those states voted to make it happen. We're never going to get those kind of numbers this decade for LSD, for psilocybin, for MDMA. We can't do that through the ballot box because the public is not with us. Right? Marijuana, being three times as popular, is three times as popular as these other drugs. So the approach we've been taking is through uh, clinical research through the Food and Drug Administration by showing that these drugs are valuable for treating medical conditions. And we have to jump through a lot of hoops and do a lot of paperwork. We have to find doctors and researchers who aren't scared to work in this area. And uh, we've been successful at doing that with the result that We now have completed two clinical trials using MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, both successful. And we have four trials currently in process, one in South Carolina, one in Boulder, Colorado, one in Vancouver, BC, and the fourth in Israel. Ah, how, what will it take? Okay. Exactly how much science do you need? Well, so... It's not really science, right? It's jumping through hoops. Okay, this community already knows that MDMA is good for increasing empathy in people 
who need to trust their therapist, who need to talk through major problems. In relationship therapy, we're working out how it's useful in autism and a whole bunch of other things. We picked PTSD as a particular um, medical condition that's been well studied, has other drugs that have been approved for it, and we're following the same path that those drugs took, for Zoloft, actually. And what happens is you go through three stages of clinical trials. Phase one, you prove that humans can take it and not die, and you figure out the dosage. In phase two, you give it to people who have a medical condition, and you show that it makes them better. We're... Yes, we are going through, we're, we are a nonprofit drug development company, MAPS, that is doing the same thing that any pharmaceutical company would do with some new drug that they've invented. None of those pharma companies want to take MDMA through that process because they're currently making more money selling you something that you have to take every day for years if you have PTSD. Whereas with MDMA, in our trials, you take it three times. And doing that with talk therapy can get you over the hump and significantly reduce your symptoms and in some cases get you past the symptoms to a cure. So that's not a, you know, there's no economic incentive to do that. The incentive is to push MDMA through the bureaucracy so that any doctor, any therapist can use it with their patients, can prescribe it to their patients. And then we can move... Once, once we've demonstrated that we can save a lot of people's angst and a lot of people's lives that way, I mean, I think the military loses more people to suicide from PTSD than they lose to combat casualties, right? It's insane. And half the people who have PTSD, there's no effective treatment for them. So if we come up with something that can help even a tenth of those people, we're saving tens or 20, 30,000 lives a year with that stuff. Well, so anyway, we have a process and a timeline. Our four current studies are designed to, to sort of perfect the exact dosage and the protocol, the treatment method that will prove to the FDA in a phase three trial with hundreds of patients that this really works. And once we've proved it to them, in that trial, which would probably end about 2021 or so, if we can raise the money to do it, then um, FDA will have to approve it and have to take it out of Schedule 1. And then what happens is a little interesting because it turns out the Food and Drug Administration, you can't get a patent on MDMA because it was invented in the early 1900s and the patents have run out. But if you're the first company to take a drug to market as a medical drug, you get a five-year window of exclusive marketing where nobody, even though it's generic and off-patent, nobody can market it for that five years. So, I, no, they can't, they can't sell it. So the deal is we want to use those five years of exclusivity. We, we want this to be broadly available. Right? The whole idea at MAPS was free MDMA up so that it, its full potential can be used in society. But in those five years, we can accumulate revenues that we'll use to get the next psychedelic through that process. And so we can bootstrap that for psilocybin or for LSD or for something else. 
And so that's the theory. It still has years to work it out. But uh, so that's, uh, that's me kind of wrapping up what's the plan for making legal psychedelics. To get through the phase three trials, so the phase two trials now are costing us about a million and a half a year. And the phase three, I think, will cost us about 15 million over four or five years. We have five million of that because one of our board members died unexpectedly and left uh, five million dollars to us, which uh, we have dedicated to uh, bootstrapping that phase three uh, research. But so we have about 10 million more to raise, plus the ongoing costs of the, the current studies. So right, with marijuana, uh, we have problems at the federal level, and we're solving the problems at the state level. With MDMA, it's going the opposite way. Um, the reason that we're working at the state level with marijuana is because the federal level is totally jammed up by politics. People have tried over and over to you know, submit the right papers to the right agency to say, this drug is not unsafe for use when under the care of a doctor, so it can't be in Schedule 1. This drug has medical uses, so it can't be in Schedule 1. And the agencies lie and uh, write, you know, basically say, no, we don't believe any of that. Look at all this evidence of other stuff, and they keep it in exactly the current state. With MDMA, it's not so politically charged as marijuana. And so the agencies so far have been willing to actually follow their own rules. Yes, yeah, the feds... The federal law is unchanged on medical marijuana. It's unchanged on recreational marijuana. It's all illegal according to the feds. The thing is, the 98% of the police officers report to the states, and they have to follow state law. So you've eliminated 98% of the problem if you fix this at the state level. And the feds will still come in and do a few high-level... I mean, they'll still bust people, and people will go to prison for 10 years or 20 years for it, and that's a travesty. But the other 98% will not have that happen to them, and that will be a big improvement. Well, they've had like 50 or 60 years to build up a whole set of terrible rules about marijuana, and all of those rules are being applied to medical marijuana you know, one after another. So, like, if you sell marijuana to somebody and you take the money and you put it in a bank account, according to the feds, you're committing a crime called money laundering for putting your money in a bank. And so dispensaries can't have bank accounts, so they can't take charge cards, and they have to deal in cash, and then they have robberies, and they have other issues. And all of this stuff will have to get unwound slowly because the public has shifted to say, we want people to be able to get medical marijuana, but the feds are doing this holding action of like, well, but they can't go to a bank. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so gradually, all that stuff will get untwisted, but it'll take some fraction of 60 years to do it. Okay, should we move on to Electronic Frontier stuff? Enough of that? Okay. So to restate the question, people have been sort of withdrawing from cloud-based services because they discovered that NSA is monitoring all of them. 
And, uh, but that's sort of like letting the terrorists win, letting the bad guys win. And so what can we do about that? Um, why don't I start with that? The, I mean, there's been a fundamental trust issue all along with the, uh, the sort of ad-supported internet model that's been going on the last decade or so where you sign up for something, a company gives you a mess of free services and they make their money selling your eyeballs to somebody else. Basically, they're under no obligation to you to do anything in particular. They're cust- you aren't their customer, right? You have no contract with them. You can't hold them to anything. If they lose all your data, it's not their problem. And if they turn over all your data to the government, it's not their problem either. Right? You've been trusting people who you didn't really have any reason to trust. And so I think it's a good move for people to back away from that and say, well, okay, if I'm going to have an email account on a server somewhere, maybe I ought to pay those guys $10 a year for the service right? and have a contract with them and hold them to it. As opposed to, oh, I'll just, uh, I trust Google because they give me so much free goodies. <laughs> right? The other thing is, the government has been pretty good about co opting the huge companies that provide these services. They have not been so good at co opting all the little companies. And so you can both protect yourself and improve the situation for everybody by instead of going to one of the big guys for your cloud services, go to a little guy. Give them your business. Get to know those people. Build a trust relationship. Build an economic relationship. Make a world... I mean, the the Internet is a distributed system. The idea is that the whole thing doesn't depend on some central point. Almost single-handedly, Google has managed to turn that upside down to where when you go to the average website, Google finds out about it, right? If that site uses Google Analytics, your browser reports you to Google. If that site has a CAPTCHA on it, Google acquired CAPTCHA, and they get records of every CAPTCHA you fill in. If there's an ad from Google on that page, Google knows you went to that page. They have centralized a lot of that stuff by providing free services and if you move away from those free services you can move away from the part of the net that's the most heavily surveilled so 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 little guys you the to restate the question so moving to these little services uh, doesn't work because the government comes after them and then they shut down well the first thing is you found out when they shut down. Google didn't tell you. Yahoo didn't tell you. right? They just co-opted your data, sent it off to the government, and they didn't tell you. You needed Snowden to tell you. The little guys at least are honest. Um, there was an anonymity service in Finland back in the 90s that uh, got a subpoena. I think it was related to Scientology to break the anonymity and the guy who ran the service honored the subpoena and responded with that one 
thing and then shut the service down for everybody because he said I cannot guarantee the anonymity of the service I'm, I'm not going to pretend to offer you an anonymous remailer but it's it's not rocket science to set one of these up right you could set one up and you could serve your friends with it and you could grow to a certain point you could also set this up in a free country I'm not an expert on which jurisdiction, but I will point out that, in, that there's an active legislative effort in Iceland led by uh, Birgitta John's daughter, who is, uh, was close to WikiLeaks, um, to deliberately craft the laws there to make it a haven for alternative media, to make it a place where the government surveillance and censorship laws are good instead of bad to try to encourage businesses to set up and move there. So it's going to be hard to find big countries that do that well, but lots of small countries will see an advantage in building an infrastructure that will attract business. Yes, so various people have been working on distributed uh, cloud-like services that are done peer-to-peer, that are done person-to-person. And the best of these... Well, sort of, yeah. The best of these services only make Internet connections between people who are already friends, who already know and trust each other. Um, Because it's less likely that your friends will rat you out secretly um, than some faceless company you've never met. So there's this theory that people are all six hops from everyone else in the world by six friendships away from everybody. You, if you apply that on a network level, it means if I want to get a message to you and I don't know you personally, but you know her and she knows Pez and I know Pez, if the software can work out that route, then I can make a connection to Pez Pez can pass it to her, she can pass it to you, and a message will get between me and you with no direct trace between me and you. And all done through people who each of us trusts. So there's a couple of networks like this. They are reasonably small. They're still being debugged. Um, But people are working on trying to scale them up and make them useful, much more broadly useful. Well, but see, no, because all of these these services work on your own computer in your own home. So the government would have to come to each home and tap them. Now, the government has gotten pretty good at writing malware, right? And one of the things they will probably try is infecting all your computers, right? So besides technical fixes to this, we also need legal and social fixes, right, to say... It's illegal for the government to break into all of your computers to spy on what you're doing without getting warrants from a court that specify what crime you're being investigated for with probable cause to show why they think you did it, right? And there has to be social expectations that say, if a bureaucracy does this, then that bureaucracy needs to be shut down. That bureaucracy needs, you know, in Japan when something bad happens in an agency, the agency head resigns. And they basically take the fall for their superiors to say, 
you know, don't blame the president for this. My agency did it. I'm getting out of here. Blame me. And it's a, a form of taking responsibility that our government has not learned, right? Our government denies responsibility for everything right up to the last minute until, you know, until we manage to put them in prison for it, which is uh, way too rare. <laughs> okay, so how does, how does EFF make progress against secret courts? Um, well, curiously, EFF was around when that secret court was set up, and we were actually part of the process of writing the law that eventually set up that secret court. It was not. It was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and it was a reform of the previous practice, which was that the president asserted that he had inherent authority to order wiretaps, uh, even though no law gave him that authority because of the separation of powers, because he's the commander-in-chief, etc. It was a bogus legal theory, and one of the ways to rein in that legal theory was for Congress to create a method that he required the president to go through to do these taps that, that involved at least some semblance of oversight by a court. Now, 15 years of uh, watching what that court did, there are some problems with how the court was set up, right? It really shouldn't, everything it does really shouldn't be secret. And in particular, um, the facts about which person is being tapped, which person is being suspected, uh, you know, in a given classified circumstance might have to be kept secret. But the legal rationales, the rules that say, well, to tap this kind of person, you need to make these factual findings and you need to invoke that law, that stuff has also been kept secret. And we think there's pretty broad agreement that that stuff can be public. And indeed, the court itself realizes it's kind of fighting for its life here. It's fighting for its reputation. It has deliberately... EFF made the first filing to that secret court this year that any outside it group has ever made. It's always been the Justice Department filing wiretap requests, and we sent them a motion that said... We're asking you to unseal your opinions so that we can get them via the Freedom of Information Act. And the court wrote a very nice opinion pretty quickly, actually. It took them less than a month that said, well, if there's anything classified in those opinions, it's not because of us. It's the Justice Department that is keeping those classified. And we believe if, if there's something in there that they don't think needs to be kept secret, it should be public. And the result is, last week, we got an 80-page decision declassified by the Justice Department in which that court found that NSA had unconstitutionally done surveillance on Americans. But that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's one, that's one opinion out of... 15,000 orders that court has issued over the last 15 years. So there are proposals now in Congress. There, there are laws in the hopper in Congress that would change that court to change the rules of it. None of them is perfectly satisfactory. 
EFF's position on this is that it's too early to try to craft fixes for the problem. We don't understand the problem yet. We need to see what the court's been doing, what the agency's been doing, what's really been going on behind that curtain of secrecy before we can craft a workable means to do oversight on it while still keeping quiet the stuff that needs to stay quiet. And I think our preferred model for that is a congressional investigation with full subpoena powers along the lines of what's, what's colloquially known as the Church Commission. This it was set up in the era after Watergate to figure out what the spy agencies were doing, and they discovered that they were reading all the telegrams that went in and out of the United States in a thing called Operation Shamrock and had been doing it for decades. And uh, the, the, they discovered the surveillance of Martin Luther King and John Lennon and all these other anti-war people. Um, there was a whole lot of stuff that came out of that investigation that only came out because the investigators had the power to go into those agencies and say, see that file cabinet over there? I want to read what's in that file cabinet. It doesn't matter what your classification on it is. We're going to read it, and we will decide whether to tell the public about it. So I think it's that kind of investigation that will have to happen before we can say, well, okay, now we have a new regime that has this kind of court with this kind of arguments and this kind of publication that can really protect us against the abuses. Yeah. Right. So the question is, do we go after like the government institutions or do we go after the people who are running them, the people who are doing these bad things? For the most part, we have gone after institutional reform. Um, it's fairly hard to succeed at holding a public servant accountable. It's just if you look at the history of people who have tried, it's, it's an uphill battle. We would rather win a case that forces them to change what they're doing than to get back at the particular guys who did it. Now, having said that, there are other nonprofits that don't take that attitude. And in particular, there are ongoing efforts, for example, to indict President Bush and Vice President Cheney for war crimes, for torture, for uh, invading countries that never did anything to us, you know, wars of aggression. Uh, all of these things are un illegal under international law, and there are active efforts. In the United States, these things are supposed to be illegal, but the people prosecuting them work at the Justice Department, and uh, they're not interested. Now, this is true in many countries where war crimes are committed, and so the rules are that if, if there is no serious chance of bringing people to justice for this in their own country, then there is what they call universal jurisdiction where any country can try the case. And uh, some particularly courageous judges in Spain have taken on that uh, universal jurisdiction in various cases of war crimes in other parts of the world. It's possible they would also do that in the relation to the war crimes of the United States. Yeah. 
So foreign investment in the U.S. has dropped significantly, he says, has begun dropping since the Snowden revelations because of a perception that you know it's a rigged game that that the thing you're investing in is actually corrupted. Now, my part of my response to that is what the U.S. government is doing is not unique. The U.S. has the biggest surveillance apparatus in the world that we know of, but every state has a surveillance apparatus. All of them surveil their own citizens. All of them surveil foreigners. I think, I mean, now this is me personally talking. I think part of the problem is the scale, is the size of the United States, particularly the military budget, right? Most countries don't choose to spend their money on doing widespread surveillance of everyone in the world, including all 300 million of their own citizens. They don't think it's a wise use of their tax revenues. Also, most countries are a lot physically smaller than the U.S., and so I I don't know about you folks, but I live in San Francisco. I I really have the idea that the people in Washington, D.C. don't care at all about what I think about what they're doing. Right? They're 3,000 miles away. They suck the money out of me, whether I like it or not. And if I don't like it, to hell with me. Right? In a small country, it's much harder to do that. Right? Because you know somebody who knows the minister of whatever. Right? And you can go and complain to them at a cocktail party and say, why the fuck are you wasting my money on this? And if they get enough of that, they would actually change what they do. But, you know, in Washington, they really don't care. So, so, well, so anyway, I think probably if the drop in investment in the United States is related to the Snowden stuff, it's probably an overreaction, right? Because it's a more, it's a more pervasive problem than just the United States, right? I mean, part of what we discovered is that the UK, because they have lax laws about wiretapping, is wiretapping every fiber optic cable that comes into the country and storing every bit of it for days at a time, right? They don't have enough storage, apparently, to store it all forever, but they're storing it for some fraction of a week so that they can go back and see exactly what everybody sent to everybody if they go in there soon enough to look. They couldn't legally do that here, I believe, though you know, secret court interpretations may, uh, may give them a different idea. Yes. Right. So, so how do you deal with, you know, a borderless internet in a in a world full of different jurisdictions that all have the right to tap? I think that the debate that Edward Snowden set off is causing debates in a lot of countries about this, and I think there will be sort of new norms for what's acceptable by the populace. I mean when a lot of the laws about surveillance were written, you know, local calls cost you, you know, 10 cents a minute or something, and long-distance calls were too expensive to... And it's like calling another country? Forget it. You know, people only did that twice a year on holidays. You know, nowadays, when you can send a packet six times around the world in a fraction of a second, 
the expectations of what is reasonable behavior on the part of security agencies need to shift. And the process of revealing what they've been doing and finding out how people feel about that is part of the process of coming to a new balance so that if they are actually working to protect us from bad things, they can keep doing that while not setting us up for a totalitarian takeover. Okay? So what do I think about Bitcoin as, as a way to uh, sort of get beyond the state-based model? Um, Bitcoin is an interesting technology, and I, I'm quite curious to see where it'll go. As with all money, it depends on trust, right? The idea, the idea of a dollar or a pound is that it will get you, some, you know, if you take a pound from somebody in return for something, that you know that that pound will get you something later. Um, the problem with any kind of currency is establishing that level of trust because it's way too easy to manipulate a currency if you created it. And the U.S. government manipulates the currency all the time, but they're constrained in how much they can manipulate it because if they did it too much, people would lose trust in it. They'd say, oh, that loaf of bread's going to cost you 10 of those dollars, not one of those dollars. Right? And as you can see, uh, I'm now in my late 50s in years. Uh, the U.S. dollar has inflated significantly, I think by about a factor of 20 since I've been born. So what used to cost a dollar now costs $20. The trust in that currency has been eroded by the manipulation. And the challenge for any kind of virtual currency like Bitcoin is to, is to show a long-term track record that, that the trust will be honored. Nobody really knows if that will happen with Bitcoin or not. A more interesting thing about Bitcoin, and then I think I have to end, I'm out of time, the implementation of Bitcoin is a mathematical thing that um, depends on a solution to a long-standing problem in cryptography called the Byzantine Generals problem. And what it means, um, the Byzantine Generals is, is a... Uh, suppose you have a city, Byzantium, and it's surrounded by six different armies... And if they all attacked at the same time, they could take over the city. But if they attack at different times, the city can fight each one separately, the city will win. So how can those generals decide when to attack? Because if they send runners to each other and say, well, let's do it on Monday, the city will send out spies and kill their runners and send substitute runners that say, oh, let's do it on Thursday. Right? How can they trust the messages they're getting to and from each other? So somebody came up with an inventive way to solve that problem of finding out when you have a majority consensus on a question. And with Bitcoin, the majority consensus they're coming to is who, which accounts own which Bitcoins. But you could use that same technology to, to answer other questions like which candidates won this election or which social policies should be followed 
or which drugs should be legal or whatever. How, so I think a much more interesting thing will be how to apply that distributed consensus-making technology to new social problems in addition to just how you make a currency. Okay, I think I'm out of time. Thank you all so much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So let me begin my comments by saying that I know there are a lot of our fellow saloners who are still in school, whether it's high school, college, or grad school. And if that's where you are right now, and if you have any interest at all in laying the foundations for the type of trusting networks that John was just talking about, well then now, right now, is the time for you to begin your work. Don't think that you should wait until uh, you get some kind of a corporate job where you'll be able to work on projects like that. This is uh, work that's going to be done in basements, garages, and bedrooms. And uh, I'm not just talking here about the technical side of this. I'm also talking about all of the different kind of things that need to be considered when building the tech. The policies and procedures that are going to be required are not the exclusive realm of us geeks. Everybody needs to get involved, and I'm positive, as uh, at least as positive as I am about anything, that some of these projects that individuals are uh, thinking about and working on right now are going to be major influences in our future. I know uh, that there are a lot of our fellow saloners, uh, like me, who were working in some area of networking when Tim Berners-Lee published the initial specs for the web. I still remember sitting at a bar one night and talking with some guys that I was working with at the time, and we were all thinking of ways to implement that spec. But, you know, we got bogged down in our day jobs and were too tired at night to think about it much anymore, and eventually we just kind of forgot about it. And I'm sure that the same scenario took place thousands of times all over the tech world. But down in southern Illinois, uh, not far from the farm on which my dearly departed mother was born, there was a grad student who inspired a bunch of guys to write a GUI interface for the web spec. They called it Mozilla, and uh, subsequently they left the university and founded a company called Netscape. They actually uh, did something about their ideas, and uh, you should too. Uh, you know, you're every bit as capable of working out some of these things as was Mark Andreessen and his friends. And uh, sometime I'll have to remember to tell you about the day that I was uh, fortunate to get to work with Mark when he was at Netscape and I was at Verizon. But let it suffice for now to say that he is one of the kindest, most gentle, and all-around nice guys that I've ever met, unlike uh, some of the other inflated egos that uh, came out of the dot-com era. But uh, it shows that nice guys like you and the rest of our saloners uh, are capable of doing great things. We don't have to be jerks in order to uh, get our, our way in the tech world. Now, uh, where was I? Oh, referring back to uh, what John said in his talk about uh, Google knowing whenever you visit what he calls a normal website. And uh, what I want to do is to let you know that the salon site is definitely not normal. Ever since uh, I began these podcasts, there haven't been any connections to Google that I know about uh, anyhow. I don't allow Google ads, nor have I installed any Google Analytics on any of my sites. But now, uh, after listening to John's talk, I remember that I do have a search box that is powered by Google, as well as their code to translate the page into 50 or more languages. So here's a question I have for any of our fellow saloners who 
might know something about this. The question is, do those two services also tie a particular user back to the files that Google already has on them? So if you know the answer to that question, uh, I and all of our fellow saloners will be much obliged if you'd let me know. Uh, if it's a problem, I'm going to get rid of those two services right away. Now that I'm on the uh, topic of Google, I, I guess it's a good chance for me to also mention one of my pet peeves. And that is the fact that so many people seem to not care about this at all. And what I'm talking about is uh, personal privacy. Here's the thing about uh, keeping as much of your personal information private as possible and why people don't. It's been my experience that most people are just simply too lazy to do so. For example, uh, on quite a few occasions I've offered uh, to my friends and family a free unlimited storage email account if they will just give up Gmail. And yet, not one, <laughs> not a single one of them has taken me up on the offer simply because they are so happy about getting all of those uh, so-called free services by letting Google have access to uh, everything that they do online. They actually think that those goodies uh, make it worth having no personal privacy anymore. It's insane, I tell them, but uh, nonetheless they pass on my offer. Now I realize that there are quite a few of our fellow saloners who currently work for Google, and I want you to know that I in no way mean to suggest that you aren't honest or that you're doing something wrong. Heck, uh, I spent 11 years working for a company that's, uh, well, it's now called Verizon. I wasn't a bad guy, but I do admit that uh, even while I worked for them, they were doing, uh, well, a lot of things that I thought were just flat wrong. But as you know, uh, us peons who work in the belly of the beast and keep the wheels turning for them, well, uh, we actually have next to no power to change things in these huge beasts, and yet uh, we can't quit our jobs because our families are depending on our support. So I'm not trying to impinge on the reputations of any corporate employees, at least employees that are below the level of the top management. But if you happen to be Larry or Sergi, well, shame on you. Did you know that if you're using a phone that is running the Android operating system that Google so generously gives away, that every time you access a Wi-Fi network for which you have the password, well, your password's being forwarded to Google, who now most likely has the access passwords to millions of private Wi-Fi networks. So I ask you, Larry and Sergey, uh, is that an example of what you mean by do no evil? Shame on you guys. You're uh, giving us geeks a really bad name. Now, getting back to the email problem, while I can't provide accounts for everyone here in the salon, any 12-year-old can set up their own account with a web hosting company for around 6 bucks a month or so and have unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth transfer, and a thousand or more email accounts with unlimited storage. So there's really no excuse for you and a few of your friends to not get together and, you know, pay a few dollars a year to escape the evil empires of Google, Yahoo, Apple, and uh, all the rest of the big corporate email providers. As uh, for another issue that John raised, that of bringing war criminals like Bush and Cheney and the cowardly Obama, a serial killer who uses drones as his preferred murder weapon, well, as much as I would like to see the whole lot of them put in prison for life, that's simply not going to happen. So the only thing that we can do is to teach our children and grandchildren that these men and their accomplices have completely perverted the U.S. Constitution 
by starting wars of aggression, making human torture a standard American practice, and who have murdered several thousand innocent civilians, including hundreds of very young children, with these cowardly drone attacks. These are men whose names should live in infamy. But the only way that's going to happen is if you take the teaching of history into your own hands. We should never let our descendants forget what horrible people have taken charge of this country. But uh, I guess I'd better move on before my blood pressure shoots up again like it does every time that I think about those clowns in Washington. However, there is one last thing that I want to mention, and at the risk of once again alienating our fellow saloners who have a strong dislike of me mentioning anything uh, in the realm of geeky tech things, well, I'd like to point out one more time that we just heard John say that he expects the government goons to begin attempting to infect our computers with malware. And since I've already had a bad malware experience, I know how totally insane it can make you until you find a way to clear it from your machine. So I'm going to say it just once again. It's time for you to dump Windows and move to Ubuntu Linux. No viruses and no malware that I've discovered so far, unlike Windows, which uh, seems to be a virus and malware magnet. Okay, end of techie stuff. Now, just two more things and I'm out of here. Uh, first of all, I'd like to apologize to uh, several people that I've had a brief email exchange with and then just kind of dropped the ball. The fact is that my intentions are good, but I just can't keep up with it all. In fact, uh, last weekend, Dr. Charlie Grobe stopped by for a visit, and uh, he said that the same thing is true with him, that there's just too much email to keep up with. So it's kind of a real hit-and-miss proposition with us both. It isn't that we mean to be rude, it's just that, well, there aren't enough hours in the day to do everything that needs doing. Actually, there have uh, been also quite a few offers to help out here in the salon uh, in all kinds of ways that I haven't been able to respond to, which means that uh, sometime in the years ahead, when I finally have to give up doing these podcasts myself, well, when that day arrives, I know that there are going to be uh, more than enough people to pick up the baton and keep the salon going indefinitely. So I really do appreciate all of your offers, uh, even though I may not be responding to you in ways that you expect. In fact, one of the really wonderful offers I've received comes from our friends at the uh, London Real uh, podcast. That's L-O-N-D-O-N-R-E-A-L, LondonReal.tv podcast. And uh, in fact, I've already played one of the interviews that they sent me, and uh, these guys have uh, made more of their great podcasts available for me to use here in the salon. But at the moment, I'm already stacked up with a big backlog of talks to podcasts, and so what I want to do is to uh, point you to their program, uh, which, as I said, you can find at londonreal.tv. They've uh, produced a whole raft of truly fascinating podcasts and are one of my favorite stops on the net. So rather than having me re-podcast some of their programs, uh, instead, why don't you just surf on over to their site right now and uh, subscribe to their show? I'm, uh, I'm sure that you won't be disappointed. And finally, uh, I want to mention once again the Psychedelic Salon magazine. It's free, by the way, and uh, no longer do you have to access Flipboard to read it. Uh, just go to our program notes, which you can uh, get to via psychedelicsalon.us, and right near the top of the sidebar on the right-hand side, you'll see a link for it. Uh, in fact, here are just a few of the uh, most recent items that I've posted there. Uh, these are the headlines, anyhow. Why the elderly should get marijuana. Universities warned of explosion in use of smart drugs. Mexico City considers creating marijuana smoking clubs. 
Cannabis Career Institute hits Chicago to help residents cash in on the new gold rush. And 27-year-old man gets 20 years of hard labor for half an ounce of pot. And uh, there are over now uh, over another 280 articles uh, like that in our magazine, and uh, they're all there for your reading pleasure. Well, that's going to be it for today. Uh, i got to go back and still try to beat this little head cold that I've got. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>